Today's podcast is brought to you by newspapers.com, the ultimate destination for exploring the mysteries of the past. If you're fascinated by true crime, get ready to dive into the stories that made headlines. Newspapers.com offers nearly a billion pages of historical newspapers from the U.S. and beyond, and you can search the entire collection in seconds. Their vast newspaper collection is a goldmine for eyewitness accounts, crime scene photos, news reports, and more. Whether you're interested in famous crimes or long-forgotten cases, Newspapers.com gives you a front-row seat to more than 300 years of history. For our listeners, Newspapers.com has a special offer. Use the code CUPOFMURDER for an exclusive 20% discount on your subscription. That's promo code CUPOFMURDER at Newspapers.com. Sign up today and start unraveling the true crime mysteries that keep you up at night. If I asked you right now to list all of the subscriptions you pay for, would you be able to? I really thought my answer to that question would be a resounding yes. But with the help of Rocket Money, I was able to find some sneaky ones I must have forgotten to cancel before the free trial ran out. Between streaming platforms, apps, delivery services, and even parenting slash kid subscriptions, though they all seem like really small amounts, when pulled together, that's a pretty big chunk of your spending money out the door. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps you lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year, with over $500 million in canceled subscriptions. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash morning cup. That's rocketmoney.com slash morning cup. Rocketmoney.com slash morning cup. There were two more murders 15 miles away. When police arrived, they found the telephones and electricity lines. We have a weird homicide. The scene described by one investigator as reminiscent of a weird... Some stories are so sensational that they seem almost rooted in fiction. On May 13, 1919, a letter arrived in New Orleans that cemented their fear that a boogeyman was very much so alive and well. So if you like your coffee hot but your bones chilled, sit back and start your day with a morning cup of murder. On May 23, 1918, while asleep in their bed, Italian grocer Joseph Maggio and his wife Catherine had their throats sliced with a straight razor by an unknown man who broke into their New Orleans home. Before leaving, the killer bashed their heads in with an axe, possibly to hide their true cause of death, and fled into the night. Joseph somehow was able to survive the initial attack, but died shortly after his brothers discovered the scene two hours after the attack after hearing groans through their shared wall. When autopsied, Catherine's throat was cut so deep that her head was nearly severed. Police, of course, arrived at the apartment and found a set of bloody clothes presumably belonging to the killer, meaning he likely changed into fresh clothing before fleeing. And on the lawn of a neighbor's property was the bloody razor used to slash their throats. A razor that belonged to Andrew Maggio, Joseph's brother who lived just next door. Nothing was missing, meaning robbery couldn't have been a motive. And when an employee at Andrew's barbershop said he took the razor home with him just two days before the murder, he became the prime suspect. Unfortunately for police, they were unable to break down his statement, and Andrew was set free. 
While police still pondered who would have wanted the Maggios dead, on June 27, 1918, Louis Bessemer and his mistress, Harriet Lowe, were attacked in the living quarters in the back of his grocery store. Louis was attacked by a hatchet above his right temple, Harriet over her left ear, and both were discovered lying in a pool of blood by a bakery wagon driver who had just come to the store to make his routine delivery. When police arrived, the axe used was found in the bathroom, and it belonged to Louis, who then told police he was asleep when the weapon was brought down on his head. Pretty quickly, a man named Louis Albuquin was arrested in connection to the attack. He was a 41-year-old black man whom Louis Bessemer had hired just a week before the attacks. And though that was the only connection he had to the crime, police arrested him certain he was the man responsible and claiming he gave conflicting accounts of his whereabouts the morning of the attack. When Harriet started to recover, she told police that she was attacked by a mulatta man, a man who did not match the description of Louis Obakin. But instead of releasing him, they simply discounted her statements as delusion. They even went as far as to say robbery was the motive when, like the first scene, nothing of value was missing. Louis was eventually released after police failed to gather any sufficient evidence, and the media, which by now had become sensationalized by the attacks, soon turned their venom on Louis Bessemer. After a number of letters written in German, Russian, and Yiddish were found in a trunk inside of his home. Police and the media started to claim that Louis was a spy and a full investigation into possible espionage began. An investigation that went full steam ahead when Harriet awoke from another bout of unconsciousness and claimed she thought Louis might be a German spy. He was immediately arrested and Harriet, who they now realized wasn't Louis's wife but his mistress, became the center of all of the media attention. They scandalized her for speaking so candidly about a man's character, and even more so when they found out that a woman of questionable morals was speaking ill of the New Orleans chief of police and outright refused to cooperate with the investigation. While all of this was happening, Louis Bessemer was released. Two lead investigators on the case were demoted for unacceptable police work, and Louis was rearrested after Harriet, who by now was dying from a failed surgery, said he was the man who attacked her that night with a hatchet. Harriet Lowe died on August 5th, 1918, and Louis was charged with the murder and served nine months in prison before being acquitted on May 1st, 1919, after 10 minutes of jury deliberation. On August 5th, 1918, the still unknown axeman struck again when he attacked 28-year-old Anna Schneider. Anna, who was eight months pregnant at the time, woke to see a dark figure standing over her. The figure then brought down a heavy bedside lamp onto her face, cutting open her skull and covering her face with blood. She was found just after midnight by her husband, who had just returned home from work. Anna survived her attack and was able to not only give the police as much evidence as possible, but deliver a completely healthy baby girl just two days after her attack. Like the others before, her home had nothing of value missing besides a few loose dollar bills, and the windows had not been forced open. Shortly after her attack, an ex-con named James Gleason was arrested, but released due to lack of evidence. It was at this point that the police were certain these crimes were connected, though it brought them no closer to a suspect. On August 10, 1918, Joseph Romano, an elderly man living with his two nieces, was attacked while sleeping in his bed. 
His nieces, Pauline and Mary Bruno, woke when they heard some strange sounds coming from their uncle's room. And upon entering, found him lying there with two open cuts on his head and an assailant fleeing from the scene. A man whom the girls could not get a good look at, but did notice he was dark-skinned and heavy-set. Joseph was able to walk to the ambulance following his injuries, but died two days later. Again, nothing was stolen and a bloody axe was found in his backyard, as well as a panel on the back door that had been chiseled away. By the time Joseph died, the whole city was wild with fear, worried now that this boogeyman, this axe man, could strike at any moment and without discretion. Reports started coming in almost daily, witnesses claiming to find an axe in their yards and stories of a dark figure lurking in the shadows. Everyone was on edge, which was not helped when John D'Antonio, a then-retired detective, made public statements that he believed the killer had been active since 1911 and had a dual personality that allowed him to seem completely normal during the day and kill without motive once the sun went down. Like a real-life Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, overcome by his desire to kill. On March 10th, 1919, grocer Lolando Giordano woke to the sounds of screaming coming from his neighbor's home. He rushed across the street to the Cordomiglia residence and found that Charles, his wife Rosie, and their infant daughter Mary had all been attacked by an unknown intruder. Rosie was standing in the doorway, blood streaming down her face and clutching her daughter's body, while Charles lay on the floor bleeding profusely. They were rushed to the hospital where, two days later, Charles was able to leave while Rosie stayed until she regained consciousness. When she did, she claimed that Lorlando and his 18-year-old son Frank were the ones responsible for the attack. Lorlando was 69 years old and in poor health, so it was unlikely that he was the one responsible for such a brutal attack, and Frank was much too large to fit in the panel chipped away at the back door. Charles himself denied his wife's claims, but police arrested the men anyway, and shortly after, they were found guilty. Frank was sentenced to hang while his father would spend the rest of his life in prison. After the trial, Charles divorced his wife. Rosie Wood, a year later, announced that she falsely accused the men out of jealousy and spite, and because her statement was the only evidence police had, the men were released. Then came the most infamous part of the Axeman lore. On March 13, 1919, a letter from the Axeman himself was published in newspapers. It contained statements like, They have never caught me, and they never will. They have never seen me, for I am invisible. Even as the ether that surrounds your earth, I am not a human being, but a spirit and a demon from the hottest hell. I am what you Orleanians and your foolish police call the Axeman and contained the following proposition. I am very fond of jazz music, and I swear by all the devils in the nether regions that every person shall be spared in whose home a jazz band is in full swing at the time I have just mentioned. If everyone has a jazz band going, well, then so much the better for you people. One thing is certain, and that is that some of your people who do not jazz it out on that specific Tuesday night, if there be any, will get the axe. That night, all of New Orleans was filled with various forms of music from their personal records to full-blown jazz bands that played at parties and dance halls. True to his word, there were no murders on the night of the 19th. 
No, the next murder would take place on August 10th, 1919, when Steve Boca, a grocer, was attacked in his sleep and, after regaining consciousness, ran into the street to investigate, only to notice his skull had been cracked open. He ran to a neighbor's house where he lost consciousness and collapsed. He recovered from his injuries, but had no recollection of his attack. Sarah Lawman, just 19 years old, was attacked on September 3, 1919, and found lying unconscious in her bed. She had been attacked with a blunt object, and a bloody axe was found on the front lawn of her building. But remarkably, she was able to survive the attack, but with no memory of the incident. The last of all victim to the Axeman of New Orleans was Mike Pepitone, who was attacked on October 27, 1919, by a large axe-wielding man that his wife saw fleeing from the scene. He died in the hospital of his injuries, leaving behind his wife and six children. And, just as quickly as he began, the Axeman of New Orleans disappeared from the area and was never seen or heard from again. In fact, to this day, there is no resolution to this case, though I am sure you know by now that there are a great number of theories. Crime writer Colin Wilson speculated that the Axeman was a man named Joseph Momfrey, a man who was shot to death in Los Angeles by none other than the widow of Mike Pepitone. Though many agree with Colin, another author named Michael Newton was unable to find any records for a man with that name or one similar, nor any information on Mrs. Pepitone's arrest, trial, or conviction. Another scholar adds that the man's name was actually Frank Doc Mumphrey, who used a number of aliases with variations of his last name, hence the possible confusion in records. Another theory was that the Axeman was getting revenge on Italian-Americans because black jazz musicians weren't getting the credit that they deserved, saying they claimed to have invented jazz when it was actually black musicians who did so. Though it does tie in the jazz element of the crime, it seems unlikely that they would have targeted grocers and others who had no connection to the music scene. Another option was that the Axeman was actually upset with the end of the Red Light District, Storyville, which happened in 1917 and ended all gambling dens, brothels, and dance halls where jazz music flourished. Maybe the Axeman was just an extremely morbid music promoter. I mean, record sales did skyrocket that March, so maybe it was a clever man piggybacking on an already tragic series of events, meaning the letter may not have been written by the actual killer. And then there is the easy answer, that the murders were an early form of mafia called the Black Hand, though many argue that this organization rarely left witnesses alive to talk to police. Regardless, the Axeman was never caught nor identified. Thank you for joining me in my morning cup of murder. Please join me again tomorrow to hear what terrible thing happened on May 14th. Don't forget to rate and subscribe and let me know how you like it. If you want to help support the podcast, there's always Patreon or just sharing it with your true crime obsessed friends. And remember, stay safe. I came from a low income family that was that was struggling. You see how hard life can get. GC became a part of my life because I don't want my family to fall back into that. I never thought education would take me this far. I'm still young. I still have a lot to do in my life and just want to get things done the way I want with a good education under me. I'm Stacy and Grand Canyon University helped me find my purpose.